Hey, welcome everybody to another episode of Bedside Matters. This is the podcast that addresses the medical issues that impact each and every one of us every single day. Hopefully what we try and do here is give you answers you're looking for so you can be more informed and healthier. I'm Peter Tilden, joined by Dr. David Kipper, of course. David. How are you, Peter? Doing really well. And Anna Vicino, how are you? Hi, I'm doing great. Thank you so much for asking. And you? Oh, and thank you for asking. I'm doing pretty good. I mean, really, actually pretty good. I haven't done a full inventory, but okay. 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 Yeah, good, good That's enough. That's good. Good adjacent. So let's start with this Elon Musk story with Neuralink uh, and, the, and the brain chips. I mean, it sounds kind of cool, you know, helping with paralysis, disabilities, et cetera, et cetera. But what's the deal with FDA approval of it? This is a an FDA approval for his Neuralink company that he started, I think, in 2016 for human trials. And it's the newest iteration of these brain-computer interface technologies. And these have been going on for two decades, basically. And what these technologies are, are doing is that they're decoding brain activity, linking them to a computer, and with the ability to restore sensory and motor functioning in people that have been compromised. Uh, some examples of what they've done so far is that they've created a head cap that can allow drones to control where they're going by just their thoughts. Uh, they've been able to help paralyze people, not only drink with a robotic arm, but also quadriplegics to be able to walk. Peter and I actually visited the Abilities Expo several years ago, and we saw a demonstration of this. Peter, do you remember this? Right. Oh, absolutely. It was it was stunning. The other thing that I just want to mention in that respect that, that I never thought of being um, able to walk, um, that people who can stand up, this device helps them stand up. The fact that you're looking eye level to somebody, you treat people very differently. In a chair, you don't realize that you're talking a different way to somebody who's below you in a chair. Or, or that's paralyzed. It's like just the fact that this person could. I said, so what's the biggest issue for you, aside from being able to move around? And it was a pretty cumbersome unit at that point. But he said that people relate to you completely differently, and, and that was an eye opener for me. I never thought about that. And what was interesting about that, Peter, if you remember, that the contraption that this gentleman was wearing, he was twelve feet tall. Yeah. So speaking about eye eye to eye contact, you know, we were. We were looking up the whole it time. Was pretty, but- it was pretty stunning. Also, the what it took to get this person to walk, and I'm sure I'm seeing now the units are downsizing and, again, controlled, mind control, which is insane. What's interesting about the Neuralink products that are coming out that he's working on now that he's getting human trials for is that different from these previous iterations that these are implantable. Uh, devices. They're surgically implanted with a robot. It's a little chip that from this little chip, it's the size of a small coin, uh, come out over 3,000 electrodes. The electrodes are incredibly small. They're 20 times smaller than the human hair. And these electrodes travel through brain tissue in the cortex of the brain, the, the top of the brain, that control all these different functions that we have. And again, that information is electrically transmitted to a computer. The computer analyzes what's going on in these areas. And the ability now to take this information 
and to translate this into treatments, uh, which allows people just using their, their thoughts. They also believe, he believes, that with this technology, he's going to be able to cure blindness. He's going to be able to have people with ALS and other uh, neurodegenerative issues be able to communicate when they could no longer speak. Uh, also, what's interesting, I thought, in his projection is that you'll be able to store and replay memories, that you will have these memories. There are certain areas of the brain, again, temporal lobe that stores memory. And if you think about what happens with people with dementia, that they're losing their memory, this is a potential benefit here. These devices are literally surgically implanted with a robot and these electrodes are implanted into these different parts of the brain. They can do the whole thing, over 3,000 of these, in about 30 minutes. So it's pretty efficient. There are huge concerns with this, obviously. Uh, first of all, we're hearing a lot of projected uh, benefits, but some very basic and realistic concerns. Now, all these trials so far have been in animal studies, and they are using pigs and monkeys. And there have been, in the last four years of these trials, there's been about 1,500 deaths of these animals. So animal rights people are very upset about this. And now we're extending this to humans. That's a concern. There's a, another concern that, that if we're going to get, be giving people cognitive advantages with this technology, uh, are we actually going to be creating a superpowers in people? And that, that's a concern and how that's controlled. It's not going to be cheap. It's going to cost anywhere from $1,000 to $3,000 for this. They anticipate that there will be some scarring around the electrodes, which means they're going to start failing after a while. And then what do they do? So there are a lot of big ifs in this. But the idea now that we can do something implantable with this many electrodes covering so many different parts of the brain that control so many different motor and sensory functions is pretty exciting. But I think we're a ways away from from reality. It's funny. Elon Musk has been touting what Tesla can do self-driving. We've heard that it was going to be self-driving cars years ago, and it still hasn't happened yet because it's complex. People hype achievement and, and, and hype a ton of stuff. Politics, a lot of stuff gets hyped to get our attention in a world that's very competitive with a lot of information flying to you now in a day. When, when we were growing up, less information. Now we are getting so much stuff pushed at us every day that to cut through, you have to hype what you're talking about. And I started reading a bunch of reports that saying even medicine, they're starting to hype findings. They're starting to hype stuff as treatments, number one, to get attention, number two, to get funding, Number three, to put pressure on the FDA. So, and I don't, I know you get all of these pronouncements of the latest tech, the latest. Are you seeing that in, in, in medicine too? Are you noticing that? This is a forever problem, Peter. There, there has always been this medical device industry that is promoting these newer and better techniques. And they're, they're vetted. The FDA has to vet them, so they have to go through human trials, but they're not foolproof. And so these things come on the market. Uh, there's several examples of this. And then after a while, they have to be reconstructed or taken off the market. The positives are is that we don't really make progress unless we 
try these things. And if you think about something very simple, in Japan, there was a huge uh, amount of gastric cancer, stomach cancer. And the Japanese developed these endoscopes that can go in and look at these tissues and, and diagnose these cancers early and treat them. From that, developed all these other endoscopies. And, all, and these endoscopies now are so sophisticated that they now have, some of them have uh, ultrasound capacity to them. So they can not only look at the stomach and the small intestine, but they can look through the stomach lining and get the best look you can at a pancreas, at a gallbladder, at all the duct systems that go from the gallbladder to the small intestine to the... And so there, there is an advantage ultimately, but we always have to be uh, careful in how we interpret this hype, as you say. And I, I think this story is a perfect example of that. It sounds great, but I think there's... a there's a big space between what we're talking about now and what we're going to see going forward. Moving on, we're talking about, and I never thought that this could be connected, how you should have your thyroid checked now if you're having problems with sexual function. One of the most common things I see as an internist in my practice is thyroid disease. And it's interesting how many different symptoms and problems emanate from people either having too little thyroid produced or too much thyroid produced. The thyroid gland is basically governed by the pituitary gland. The pituitary gland sends a message to the thyroid gland to either make more hormone or less hormone. And it does this through the blood supply that travels between these two organs and if the pituitary gland senses that the thyroid gland is not putting out enough hormone, it increases the amount of thyroid stimulating hormone, which stimulates, goes to the thyroid, stimulates the thyroid, and it puts out more thyroid hormone. If there's too much in the system, someone is hyperthyroid, then the pituitary gland senses that, and it sends a message to the thyroid to stop production and to um, lessen the amount of thyroid. So the, the glandular system is so complicated and integrated, but fascinating. But thyroid disease is getting back to the thyroid. Thyroid disease can manifest in so many different ways. And one of the things that we see, and this was a study that was done in, in the UK, where they were starting to look at sexual dysfunction and thyroid disease. And what they found was sort of interesting, and, and it somewhat mirrors what I have seen clinically over the years, is that there's a huge percentage of people that have diminished sexual function with thyroid disease. Their study showed that 70% of people had a decreased uh, sexual function when they had thyroid disease. That's a big number. Is this men or women or both? Both, both. Oh. And they had both as with respect to libido. Obviously, males had a over 40% reduction in erectile function. And 20% uh, of men and women had difficulty reaching orgasm. Uh, and I give these um, statistics. I, I'm not a big fan of statistics, but just to demonstrate that these are big numbers. These are significant numbers. And what they also found, it wasn't just about sex, that probably close to 90% of people had mental health issues when they had thyroid dysfunction. Now, 
I always wonder, is this a chicken and an egg argument? Did the thyroid disease lead to the sexual and mental health dysfunction? Or was it the other way around? And is it cause and effect? Or is it just an association? I'm not sure how to interpret those statistics. But what we do know is that traveling along with thyroid disease, there's a tremendous amount of mental health issues. What they found with the mental health statistics, again, I'm going to go back to some statistics, is that 76% of people that had uh, thyroid problems had a diminished mood. 71% of people had concentration problems. Uh, 70% of people lack of motivation. And half the people had insomnia. So all of these things that we see clinically can correlate to thyroid disease. And one in 20 people have thyroid problems. And if, if the problem with that is that about a third of these people aren't diagnosed initially. Sometimes it can take years before they understand that it's thyroid. Isn't that part of like, because when you go to your GP, most people just test for one marker, but you're supposed to look for all these different markers or go to, like, how do you know to do further testing for thyroid? Well, the problem is, Anna, that's that's the great question because these symptoms are often very generic. Someone comes in and says, I'm tired, I'm gaining weight, I'm losing my hair, I'm irritable, I'm whatever these things are. Um, they can be 15 different things. What I have learned over the years is that no matter what somebody complains about, I check their thyroid mm. because it's it sometimes correlates. And If you have low thyroid, if you're hypothyroid, your gland isn't producing enough thyroid hormone. First of all, these are genetic problems often, more common in women, but it happens in men. These people present as being tired, gaining weight, uh, depressed, constipated, their skin is dry, their hair is brittle, they have menstrual irregularities. Uh, People that have overactive thyroids present being nervous, uh, being irritable, being hyperactive, When I was an intern in training, I was on rounds with the resident who's much smarter than the intern, and then an attending doctor who's smarter than all of us. And the attending doctor, (laughs) we walked by this room, and the attending doctor said, I want you to look in this room and look at the woman in this room. And there was a woman, a, a younger woman in this room that was rearranging the furniture. And the doctor said, this woman has an overactive thyroid. <laughs> right. Now, she may have had some other mental illness. She may just not have liked the way the furniture was appropriated. But in fact, when she had we some extra with, energy. When we were done with rounds, I went back and I looked at her chart, and sure enough, she was hyperthyroid. So it can manifest in a lot of different ways. Overactive thyroid can give diarrhea. If you think of your system as being turned on, overly turned on, those are hyperactive thyroids. And if you look at someone that is turned down, those are the hypothyroid. Oh my God. My wife just rearranged the den. (laughs) Well, I've been to your den. That was a good thing that she (laughs) did this. (laughs) It was overdue, frankly. That's fascinating. That is really fascinating. Does Hashimoto's play a factor with this at all? Or Yes. Uh, Hashimoto's is one of those, it's an autoimmune disorder of the thyroid. But I think the message for our listeners is that if you're having any problem whatsoever, and especially if it's in your sex life, you should ask your doctor to please check your thyroids because it's not an automatic when you go to see a doctor. Or your partner's thyroid. <laughs> or your partner's thyroid. <laughs> We're not having sex. Could you check my, my partner? 
<laughs> Please against against their will is the way that you you also want that. You know what's great when I listen to this, David, and for people listening, for everybody who's worried about AI replacing everything, you can't replace a doctor who has the instinct to go. I always check thyroid because of my experience in doing this. It takes me there. AI may not know to do that. That that there's a gut instinct thing that's happened with a doctor like David who's been doing this a long time. And, and has that kind of intuition. So that's that's hopeful. Meanwhile, what else is hopeful? This is a mind blower. This is huge. In this week's, this just happened. An Israeli company has come up with a cancer treatment that they're saying has a 90% success rate. And I want to know if this is hype or not and what kind of cancer it treats. That That is stunning. This is a really fascinating study and I think it's real and I think it's going to save a lot of people's lives and it's fantastic. And it actually incorporates a couple of different kinds of cancer treatments that have come onto the landscape in the last 10 years. Uh, so this group in Israel, we're looking at people with multiple myeloma. Multiple myeloma is a bone marrow cancer. It's probably the second most common bone marrow cancer that we see. And the bone marrow is responsible for making your red blood cells, your white blood cells, your platelets. And when those cell populations go awry because of this cancer, people get a lot of different problems. They become anemic because they don't have enough red cells. They can produce too many white blood cells. Those are what we see in lymphomas. There are leukemias where, uh, again, the white blood cell count, instead of going high in lymphomas, goes low in leukemias. They're, those people can't fight infections. So the bone marrow controls a lot of different kinds of problems. And multiple myeloma is very common in people over 70. It's really common. And it's thought to be on some level an aging issue. As the bone marrow ages, it loses its oomph. And what the Israelis did was that they took, and the two-year survival, by the way, is about what these people get. They get a two-year survival once the diagnosis is made. So that's not a very encouraging bit of information to share with your patient that you diagnose with myeloma. This is now going to change that game. They've used a couple different technologies that are really fascinating. One is called the CAR-T technology, C-A-R-T. The T stands for T-cells, and the CAR has to do with the antigens that they see on these tumor cells, specific proteins that we see on very specific cancers. And what they do is that they take someone's blood, and they take their white blood cells, and they harvest the T-cells. The T-cells are the cancer-fighting cells. And then they somehow multiply these T cells. They make tons of them from the ones they take. And then they bioengineer the tumor itself. They take the tumor cell. They take a protein that the tumor cell makes on its surface. And they can take those cells and they can train the T cells that they've taken to fight specifically those tumor cells. So they can make more T cells that fight the cancer cells. They can find the protein that this cancer myeloma is making, and they can direct these T cells to kill those very specific proteins. That's insane. And yeah, that, that's how this is done. It's, it's incredible. And it's, it's even more complicated, but more interesting. And they actually use a virus, um, 
and they put this tumor antigen, this tumor protein in the virus, and they inject that back into the system. And now you've had uh, in, also injected into the system all these fighter T cells. So you're putting in these cancer cells, but you're also putting in these T cells to go get them. And so the technology is just unbelievable. And we're using CAR-T technology with other cancers, um, not so much solid tumors like organ tumors like kidney and liver. And, but this treatment has very minimal side effects. It's going to be here in the United States within a couple months. So we're going to have this here for, for us. The problem with this technology is that it's very complicated. And, you know, in one minute, I explained how the T cells go after these tumor proteins, but it takes forever to make this happen. This is happening in a laboratory. This isn't us talking about it. This takes a while to do. So the technology is sort of onerous, but because of our awareness of this, and also because in some degree, AI and our ability to mass produce certain things and, and have a database, it's incredible. This is really groundbreaking stuff. Very exciting. Let's get to, hey, what about me? Lauren today has a question about his PSA score. Hey, Dr. Kipper, my name is Lauren, and I am a 51-year-old male. I came back with some recently elevated PSA levels. The level I just received from my lab is 4.34, which is a little over the standard range, and it is up from last year, uh, like a good two points. My numbers last year was 2.38. So my physician would like to send me to uh, urology, and I just wanted to get your take on this. Lauren, thank you so much for sharing this. And I know this must be a concerning and worrisome time for you, but let me let me give you some good news and let me explain what the journey is going to be for you with this. The PSA for listeners that aren't aware of this is a measurement, it's a biomarker for prostate cancer. And we measure this. And uh, as this number goes up through our life, if it changes dramatically, it could indicate that a cancer is developing in the prostate gland. A normal value is from one to four, but we don't just go by the numbers anymore. Lauren, you mentioned that last year you were a 2.38, and this year you're a 4.34. So the trend of this that has gone up by a couple points is something that we are concerned about and pay attention to. Doesn't mean you have prostate cancer. Several things can elevate a PSA. A PSA can go up if you've had a sort of a change in your sexual patterns, if you've had more sex recently, if you've had gone from having a lot of sex and having no sex. So the gland itself can trick you in that regard. Uh, it also has to do with age. You're a young man at 51, so a change in PSA in a 51-year-old in a is very different than a change if you were in your 60s and 70s. So what the next step is going to be, let's pretend I'm your urologist. Your urologist is going to recommend that you get an MRI of your prostate gland. We used to go immediately to biopsies, but the MRI machines now are very sensitive and they will pick up any lesions in the prostate gland that might be cancerous. Doesn't mean they are cancerous, but you can see abnormalities on the MRI. The MRI also is going to tell us whether or not we have any kind of cells or lesions outside of the gland, indicating that 
if there is tumor, did the tumor go into the lymph nodes? Did it go into other tissues around the prostate gland? That's important because it would indicate that the tumor itself has spread. The treatments change dramatically if the tumors are outside of the prostate gland, whether they're restricted to just the inside. Those are very different treatments. The cure rates, the prognosis are all different depending on whether it's localized in the gland or it's gotten outside the gland. So these are all the things that the MRI is going to tell us. And the MRI, again, is non it's, it's very sensitive but not specific in the sense that we can see changes on the MRI, but they may not be cancer. They may just be inflammatory changes. So the next step is to do a targeted biopsy where those changes appear on the MRI. And you go in and they have the MRI findings in front of them, and they are able to localize exactly where they need to do the biopsy. In the past, we used to do 18 biopsy sites just randomly around the gland. Now that we have MRI-guided information, we can go directly into those areas. So the biopsy itself is uncomfortable but not terrible. Uh, you're given some Novocaine uh, injections around the prostate gland before the exam. The, the biopsy feels like someone's snapping a rubber band against the back of your hand, so it's not horrible, but it's a little bit annoying. And once they get the biopsy results, which can take about a week, then your urologist will bring you back into the office and discuss the findings. If it's benign, it's adios, Lauren, see you later, you're fine. And they'll just follow these PSA numbers. If there is cancer, the next thing they do is they identify what's called a Gleason score. And a Gleason score is a prognostic indicator of how serious these cells are and how well differentiated or poorly differentiated these cells are. What that means in English is, is that a cancer cell is different than a normal cell. And the more different they are, that indicates that they're poorly differentiated. They're very much different than the normal cell. The more poorly differentiated these cells are, the more aggressive the cancer cells are. And the Gleason score helps identify how aggressive these cells are. And those scores come out anywhere from a 6 to a 10. Uh, a 6 is a very good prognosis, and a 10 is a more difficult prognosis and, again, indicates different treatments. The treatments now for prostate cancer are amazing, even in the most difficult form. If the prostate cancer is limited to the gland itself, those are usually treated with the removal of the prostate gland. Every male worries about, am I going to be have sexual problems? Am I going to have urinary incontinence? Those are the two things they worry about. Now, with robotic surgeries, they can do this in such a sensitive and specific way when they take the gland out, they will leave the capsule around the prostate, and it's in the capsule is where what we call the neurovascular bundle is, where the blood vessels and the nerves are. You can dissect out the glandular tissue, spare the neurocapsular bundle, and preserve your sexual function and your ability to remain continent and not have leakage. Almost everybody 
that has these robotic surgeries for this level of cancer restores their sexual function and does not have leakage. So the prognosis is excellent and the cure rate is excellent. And what happens after that, if you're in that group, is that you will follow these PSA numbers. If for any reason those numbers over time start to go up a little bit, uh, there's actually a new scan that came out a couple years ago. It's called a PSMA scan. And that scan can go through your whole body and see a prostate cell up to a half a millimeter. It's like a pencil dot. And we can identify cells that have gotten loose into the system system and find out where they are and treat them locally. And so the prognosis for these cancers is really excellent if it's um, localized to the gland. If it's outside the gland, then the treatments change. We don't operate because now cells have migrated out of the gland. And we do chemotherapy, radiation therapy, and hormonal therapy. Those are the different kinds of therapies. I don't want to get too deep into this because I'm hoping and believing that this is not going to be a serious problem for you. If that is the case, however, and as you're laying in bed thinking you've got the worst thing possible, there is treatment for all of this. And the treatments now are amazing. The hormonal treatment, as an example, can keep the testosterone levels at a zero. And testosterone is a nurturing uh, hormone to prostate cancer. So if you cut out the testosterone in your system, you're not going to grow these cells and your prognosis then becomes much better. And your, your quality of life changes a little bit with this because you've now lost your male hormone, but you're alive and you can live for years. And these treatments are evolving very quickly. It's such a common illness that We have so many new treatments now, and we always tell people that have cancer, there are new things coming all the time. This is the kind of tumor that that is actually a true statement. So they're, they're through the course of your lifetime as a young man in your early 50s, there will be many things ahead for you if you end up going down that other path. But common things being common, you're not likely to have a serious disease and you the odds are in your favor depending on all the metrics that come out of this that you will be cured so i'm sorry that you're having to deal with this there are a lot of unknowns make sure that you write down all your questions when you go to the urologist things that we've talked about do your homework go on the internet and find out all the terrible things that can happen to anybody with any disease write down those questions, take them into your visit so you get those answered. Let us know. Maybe we can help fine-tune this for you. But I I don't think you're uh, committed to a horrible outcome at this point. This may be a totally benign change in your PSA. So keep a perspective on this and good luck to you. All right. Thank you so much. We did it. Another episode in the can. Today we covered Neuralink. So Neuralink is Elon Musk's addition to the constantly changing technology of how we're going to be able to enter the brain in order to program our brain activity into a computer that's going to allow us to affect changes in sensory and motor problems that people have from multiple different diseases. A lot of what ifs in this, but the idea is fantastic and it 
fits into several other technologies that we're going to see and we have seen evolving over the last many years. And then we talked about another side effect of thyroid dysfunction that I wasn't aware of. If your sex life is failing, ask your doctor to check your thyroid. We've got an Israeli breakthrough on myeloma that has a 90% cure rate, it appears. So combining two different technologies, which is bioengineering of cancer cells and augmenting our killer T cells that we have in our immune system, we've been able to address multiple myeloma that had a two-year survival statistic to now 90% of these people going into complete remission. This is very exciting, and it's, it's coming to the United States in a couple months. And Lauren had a PSA question. So prostate cancer is very common, of course, the most common thing we see in men, but there's great news ahead, and it's important to understand all the nuances of what we do know and where we're going with this. But for those of you concerned, this should give you some hope. And I want to thank, of course, Anna for today, Dr. David Kipper, producer Laurie, and you for listening. Anna Vecino, she's got a great website. It's got recipe boxes, sauces and spices, which are wonderful. I've used all of her uh, spices and sauces. She's got great cookbooks that are gluten-free, grain-free, low-carb recipes, which is wonderful. David's book, Overdrive, you can take control of your brain by reading this book. And of course... Thank you for listening, and if you're sick and tired of being sick and tired, follow us at BedsideMatters.org. The information on Bedside Matters should not be understood or construed as medical or health advice. The information on Bedside Matters is not a substitute for medical or health advice from a professional who is aware of the facts and circumstances of your individual situation. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with your friends. We'll see you next time.